0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, entitled, Repentance. We we're making our way through the Old Testament, and we've been at it for seven years. And it's a good thing we named it the highlight reel and only hit the highlights, because otherwise we'd probably all be dead before we got through it all. Too much, there's too much to look at. I mean, it really is. The uh, Bible is just that way. And we're all the way in the book of Zechariah. And if you don't know where Zechariah is, is, the second to last book of the Old Testament. If you know where Matthew is, and turn left a book, you're in Malachi. One more left, and you're in Zechariah. Zechariah is among the larger of the minor prophets. Again, they're called minor only because, not because of what they have to say is unimportant, just because they say less than, say, a Jeremiah or a Isaiah, 50-something, 60-something chapters worth of, worth of stuff, Ezekiel, uh, even Daniel, 12 chapters. So, um, just as a matter of verbiage here, is, is, the, is the rendering between the old, or between the minor and the major prophets, if that interests you at all, nonetheless I'm saying it right. We're going to be in Zechariah, we're beginning the book, and uh, we're going to be hitting the highlights in this book, and, uh, which is going to be tough to do, because it's like everything in it is good, and so all of it, and true for all the books. Zechariah chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is one on your phone. There's one on the internet, and there's one on your pad, or there's one in the, underneath the pew in front of you. We're a Bible church. I know it says Baptist out in the front, but only, we're only Baptists as much as we're Bible. and Baptist, I was raised by Baptists, and they were just all Bible people, and so that's what we are here. And so We believe and follow the Scriptures. We follow the Scriptures not just in the way that we want to. We don't just hold the Bible out and then do our own thing. A lot of people do that. We actually take the Bible for what it says, and we follow it according to what it says. We don't try to think for ourselves because we don't believe God has left us to do that. I don't see where the shepherd ever allows the sheep to make decisions. I think the, it's the other way around. Uh, since he's our shepherd, we follow him. And uh, we're the sheep, he's our shepherd, right? So, so we're in the book of Zechariah. It's a pivotal book, not to say that any of them aren't, but this is a, one that's got a, a lot of uh, washes over into the New Testament, uh, just as a word of education, I guess you could say. There is a gap, even though it's not in your Bible, there's a 400-year gap between the Old and New Testaments. I mean, there's 400 years in which no prophet arises. And 400 years, we just throw that out glibly like it's no big deal. Guys, that's almost twice as old as our country. 400 years is a long time. And you've got these massive time spaces in between here that are going on here. And it's not a small thing. And uh, so there is a gap there that's implied at least, or we should understand is there. The book here is pivotal, though. The book of Zechariah, pivotal one in the Bible. Um, It's the second youngest in the Old Testament. And it relates us to one of the oldest books in the New Testament. So, one of the most, the earliest written of the New Testament, Book of Luke, is related to the Book of Zechariah because the Book of Luke starts off with a guy by the name of Zechariah. Same name, not the same guy. Four hundred years later, like I said, but it, you could say, well, that's coincidence. And I would beg to differ with you. And here's the reason why. Um, Zechariah is. Uh, I said a pivotal book. It's written close to the very end. We know Malachi was written a little bit later, not just because it shows up like that way in the Bible. I know, Bible sort of the order of your books are in some ways arbitrary. Uh, the Jews who have the same Old Testament as we do put a different order to it. First and Second Chronicles are the last books of their Bible. Again, just for trivial pursuit information there but because of the time that they were written. But Zechariah is very near the end, and it, it connects us with the New Testament because of this name and because of the person that is predicted there. Um, John the Baptist, of course, was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, and uh, he's significant because of, well, really the story that begins here just with the names in Zechariah. Take a look at the first verse. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. who was the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Well, and their names are significant. The meanings of the names were significant. We don't put much emphasis on meanings of names anymore, but they definitely did. The name Zachariah literally means for God. It means God remembers something. The name Berzekiah, which of course was his dad, means God's blesses. The name Iddo, which is his grandfather, means at the appointed time. You put them together, you actually get a sentence that makes sense. Here it is. God remembers and blesses. At the appointed time, in other words, when he chooses, when it's right. God remembers and God blesses when he chooses. The next time we see Zachariah show up in the Bible, like I said, it's in the book of Luke, and it's the beginning of the story of the Nativity. God comes through an angel to, the, to a priest named Zechariah, whose wife is named Elizabeth, and he tells them that even in their old age, they're going to have a son. And he's to name him John. And of course, this turns out to be John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ. He's a cousin to and the forerunner of, of Jesus Christ. So we have the name Zechariah and his dad and grandfather, meaning God remembers and blesses in the appointed time in the Old Testament. And the New Testament begins with a Zechariah. His name, of course, means God remembers. He's married to a woman by the name of Elizabeth, which means God's oath. So, which, take that sentence. So God remembers his oath. We read the sentence all the way through, starting in the Old Testament. It says, God remembers and blesses at the appointed time. When is the appointed time? When the next Zechariah comes into the temple, and that Zechariah, along with the name Elizabeth, means God remembers his oath. And so you find that, you know, you just find these details in the Scriptures, even in the names, and the the majesty of the inspiration of Scripture. There's some uh, fallacious thinking that just the message of the Bible is important. The words can't be completely relied upon. So, so let me get this straight. So, words make up sentences, don't they? Last time I checked, sentences make up paragraphs. Paragraphs make up stories, and stories m- make up messages. So, the Bible is no more reliable than the words. So, the Bible, if the words aren't reliable, then how can the sentence be reliable? And the sentence isn't reliable. Then how can the paragraph? And then how can the stories? And see, what I'm saying it's a fallacious thinking to think that oh, well, the stories are inspired, but the words are not. Really? So I write you a letter, and then I, I've said this before, and I write a letter to the congregation. They read it in front of the congregation. This is from Pastor Bill. Pastor Bill wrote this letter, and then at the end of the conversation, Pastor Bill wants you to know this kind of stuff, and then somebody raised their hand. And, Pastor Bill asked you to write that letter. No, no, he didn't actually write the words, but it's the message that he wanted to communicate to you. Well, if it's not his words, guys, then it's not his message. If these are not his words, God's words, then by definition, they are not his message. So so we have, again, the majesty of the inspiration of Scripture, and and really, it's for you to take or leave. It's up to you. The the pivotalness of the book of Zechariah, though, again, back to our point. The book also dovetails with the previous book. Again, look at verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, Darius is a Persian king. So that's a very specific date. It's very similar to the date that we find over here in Haggai. We just got out a book of Haggai, right? Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius, that's the same year, in the first day of the sixth month. So two months before this, Haggai was saying what he's about to say, and then Zechariah two months later, well then Darius, I mean, I'm sorry, Haggai says that in the first chapter, then the sixth month, and then in the seventh month he says, it introduces it this way, and then of course it says here in chapter 1 of verse 1 of Zechariah, it says that he spoke in the eighth month, and then it tells us a little bit later in the book of Haggai that Haggai spoke in the ninth month, so we got Haggai speaking sixth month and the seventh month, and then we got Zechariah speaking the eighth month and then and then in the ninth month we got Haggai speaking again. so what have you got here? you've got basically a stereo effect of preachers going on here, same people, same groups of people, two different preachers coming at them from two different directions, and so uh, they have it up to here with with preachers obviously uh, so so you got Haggai, which is a very practical book, basically Haggai says. Get up off your backsides and get to work. Build the temple. Get going. You say God is first in your life, and yet 19 years, the temple which you've been brought back to the land to rebuild, you have not rebuilt, the whole purpose of you being here, get going and, and check and see if, if not from this point on, as you start to build the temple, if God doesn't bless you. So very practical. You do this, it equals that. Well, a lot of us like practical messages, don't we? And I, I like practical. I like when I can make it a point and, and, and make it come down. To, to something that we can apply and see a difference in, in a very quick time. And then you've got Zechariah, who's prophesying at the same time to the same group of people on behalf of the same God, right? And yet his prophecy is not at all like, it's. I can't say it's not practical, but it's not near as practical of do this and this will happen the next day. Zachariah has a vision, or I should say a dream in one night in which he sees 10 visions. And I don't know when the last time you ate too much pizza was, but you can get that way too, but that wasn't a result of pizza. This guy was by the Holy Spirit seeing this vision of all the things that God was going to do for his people, 10 different visions, and, and it comes at him, and he begins to relay this message. So on the one hand, they've got this very practical preacher, Haggai, get up and do this, and this will be the result, and then at the same time, Dovetailed in there month to month, one, one after the other. You got Zechariah pointing way into the future. The book of Zechariah takes us all the way through the Battle of Armageddon, all the way through the book of Revelation, really. The last two chapters are just nothing but Battle of Armageddon stuff. You need to read it, not right now. It's awesome. But it's this visionary stuff, right? So, which do we need in our lives? Some people prefer the visionary stuff because practicality, you know, they. The, the trees get in the way of what they want to do. And the rest, some of us else that prefer practical, we can't see the forest for the trees. And so what kind of preaching do we need? You've got to have both. And again, back to why we're the sheep and he's the shepherd, the Bible is written that way. The Bible on one page will be very practical and on the next page will be very visionary. And for us to say we like one or the other, well, sheep have a tendency to do that but it's not our right to decide which one we should have in our lives. The Bible is written, why do, we start, why do we recommend that you start in Genesis and read through the book of Revelation? Because we didn't write this. God did. It's His Word. You take it the way He brings it to you. Why do we preach that way? Why do we take it as it comes and not go topically and just go to the places where we want to go? Because we don't trust our brains. We don't trust our spirits. We trust God, whose spirit inspired this. And so we take it as it comes. We can have Haggai on one Sunday and Zechariah on the next Sunday, which is exactly what we did. One very practical and one very visionary. And yet at the same time, we can trust that God has given to his sheep what we need. And so, so we have this here in such an important message that we just simply get just by the organization of Scripture, such an important message. So now we're ready to look at the visions or beginning of the visions of Zechariah. And I can sum them all up effectively to say that God is going to bless his people. God is going to, right is going to win. God's going to see to it. He's going to push it through. It's going to happen. It doesn't matter what it looks like. God's going to cause it to be because he's sovereign. And since he's sovereign, what he says is going to take place. He doesn't just throw out words. What he says, he means. And what he means, he says. But there is a giant prerequisite to all the blessings that are predicted in Zechariah. And it is giant. It's massive. And it's basically a hinge, a threshold, a threshold. That has to be crossed both by God's people in the day that Zechariah prophesied this and God's people today. The blessings of God hinge on a thing called repentance. Take a look, chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Like I said, they've come back, they've been 70 years in exile. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have come and destroyed their country and destroyed their city and destroyed the temple because they wouldn't listen. Again, God says, I was very angry with your fathers. They could look around and see the evidence of that. They could consider their living conditions and see the evidence of that. Therefore, say to them, this instructions to Zechariah, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says Lord of hosts. Return to me, that I may return to you. You want God to return to you? Listen, you're going to have to first return to him. You want God to bless you? You want the blessings of God to pour on your life and leadership of God and the hand of God to be on you? Listen, you can't do that and continue to run your own show, your own way, Your own timing, you're calling all the shots and you just want God to come along like some bellboy that you ring a bell and he shows up to just send you blessings. It does not work like that. Return to me so that I can return to you. You want the the blessings, the return of God in your life? Listen, you got to return to him. It's a thing called repentance. It's a turning around. It's it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a turning ourselves around and saying god I am no longer running the way that I've been going the way I've been going is wrong and it's not not right and I'm confessing that and I'm turning back to you and god stands ready with all of his power to enable you to do that but he will not go past your your ability to decide you continue to be stubborn and hard-headed about it well then guess what the blessings are going to pour but you won't receive any of them So this vision that he has here is a vision of repentance, and it's the hinge to the whole book. The blessings are coming, but it hinges on repentance or hinges on these people returning to him. And repentance is not just a message that he's given to the day of the people of Zechariah. It's always been his message. Look at continuing verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, for whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen nor give heed to me. So it was a message to them, too. And they didn't listen. What was the result? Bad stuff. Not what they wanted. Like I said, they think just like us. I can do whatever I want, and then I can call on God to come bless me. No. Like I said, they were living in the rubble of, why, of, of, the, of the example of why that doesn't work. Repentance, returning to God, was a constant cry of the Old Testament prophets, and then it bleeds over to the New. Consider just here's here's the, here's some of the big guys: Isaiah 55, six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Notice there, there, there's going to be a time in which you can't find him, and a time in which he's not near. So don't take your option, your opportunity, for granted. I would suggest to you, if you think you're going to get another chance, it's foolish. You're a fool. Maybe you will. I hope you do, but maybe you won't, because there's going to come a time in which he can't be found. Let the wicked forsake his way, when, when? Not tomorrow, right now. And the righteous man, his thoughts, and let him, there it is, return to the Lord. It's the same message. Same This is 200 and something years before uh, Zechariah prophesies, before he's ever lived. And he will have compassion. Notice the result, same as same as it says here. Return to me, and I'll return to you, so that he will have compassion on him and, and, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Man, what great news. But you've got to return to him, you see. Jeremiah 3. Return. Faithless Israel declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger. That is, if you return. Again, it's this hinge. It's this threshold you've got to cross. For I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. That's what he's asking. Say what you're doing is wrong. How hard could that be, right? Well, I don't know about you, but it's been hard sometimes, really hard. Because I've had to say that over some maybe significant portions of my life. Significant time in which I was doing stuff that I shouldn't have been doing and going in directions that I shouldn't have been going. And it's hard to say that I was a mess up that whole time. And again, why? Because there's another mess up in my life, and it's called pride. Pride keeps me from acknowledging the fact that I've, it's a mess up on top of the other mess ups that I'm, that I'm making. It's, it, again, but it is God's message. Return. Here's another of the major prophets, Ezekiel. Repent and return away from all your transgressions so that that iniquity may not become a struggle, stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Wow, that would be tough. For, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Again, those are things God's asking you to do that obviously you can't do. But if you'll just simply say, God, help me. God stands ready to empower you to make that turn to him. But you've got to say, listen, wh- what I'm doing and where I'm going is a downhill slide. And I can't stop it. And I don't want to do it anymore. And I'm done. And, and God, I confess it all is sin. And then, then God's going to give you that ability to turn. God is. But again, like I said, we have this constant message, like a broken record of the prophets. Hosea, return, O Israel. There he is. It's the Lord your God. You have stumbled, for you have stumbled because, what? Because of your iniquity. Joel, what an amazing statement here. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. With all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. It's a problem, it's not you know, outward show and religious stuff, it doesn't do you any good. It's the heart's a problem. You've got to deal with the heart. Return to the Lord, right? Your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. It's not who he, you know, not pouring out blessings in your life and, and giving the consequences of your sins. It's not what God wants to do. It's what you're making him do. It's not what he wants to be. But it's who you're making him be. Again, Amos, simple message. For thus says the Lord God, the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. I think that's a good statement right there. All right, then we need to seek him. From the days, that last book of the Old Testament, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Here it is again. Return to me, and I will return to you. You want God just to come up and just sweep you up and start blessing you, and then you'll find it in your heart to give up the stuff that you were doing because, no, God says you've got to first make a decision about that stuff so that I can bring my stuff into your life. So 400 years later, the next prophet that arises in Israel is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Guess what's the first thing out of his mouth? It's going to sound like a broken record. There he is. This is the whole sermon that he preached every single day. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was a forerunner of Christ, first cousin of Christ. And he, as he faded and as Jesus came into prominence, Jesus began to preach. Guess what message? Jesus preached. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Wow. So, why is there having to pre- continue to preach these messages? Because, because it's still our problem. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, as Jesus comes and completes his mission, which is to die for our sins and to resurrect, to prove that he is the Savior. He commissioned his disciples to be preachers of the truth, and a, a part of the preaching of that truth involved the exact same message, that repentance. For the, this is as he's standing on the mountain about ready to ascend into heaven. That repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Again, and so what would you expect that Peter, even though he opened his mouth quite often only to change feet, when he first preached his first sermon to the first church or the first gathering... What did he say? This is Peter. Repent. Broken record, right? So that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And again, Paul speaking to the Gentiles. That was Peter to the Jews. And now Paul speaking to the Greek Gentiles. Notice, therefore, having acknowledged, overlooked the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should. What is that? Now, I've been highly trained, and I have a lot of degrees. So, I'm saying this with great professionalism. I detect a pattern, y'all. <laughs> I know you can't see it because only with my visionary ability and my credible doctorate degrees and all that stuff, there is a definite pattern here. Repentance, return, repentance. When was the last time you repented? Oh, that's only the conversion experience. No. No, the main message of the repentance is not to the unconverted. It's to the converted. It's to those who already know him in the Bible. Repentance. Recognizing what I'm doing and where I'm going and what I'm missing because of those decisions that I'm making and turning around so that God can be all that he wants to be and that I want him to be. You see, I, I want all the things of God But I want it all on my terms. And God is saying over and over again, it does not work that way. And I will not make exception for you, because I've never made an exception before for anyone. And he will not be making an exception for us. And have we forgotten, by the way, what Jesus told us is the parables that he told us in Luke 15. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents? It's in the presence of the angels, so it's not the angels doing it. So I've got two groups up there, or two entities, angels and God. And so if the angels are watching it, who's doing it? The the rejoicing. That would be God. That's what he's saying. So God rejoices in heaven when a sinner repents? It's what exactly Jesus says. I said, you can't miss this message. So here, here it is again. Zechariah is just one of the guys, the string of things that are saying the same thing. God has a place of blessing and comfort and grace and mercy and hope and peace. But it's only for those, listen, who turn from their sins to God. It just is. We didn't write this stuff. We are obligated to preach it the way it says. So, so to not do this holds dire consequences. And consider as we back to Zechariah. Consider the example that he uses. So he says, don't be like your fathers, who I preached the message of repentance, but who did not. And so then he draws a conclusion or an illustration for what's around them, the rubble they're living in. Because of their father's disobedience, the city was destroyed. You know, I already said that. Verse 5. Your fathers, he says, where are they? Which is the answer is, they're dead. And in most cases, they died horrific deaths. Because they wouldn't listen to God. And they continued in the direction they wanted to go. Continue to do their own stuff. And the prophets, do they live for, in other words, they wrote their stuff down, but the prophets aren't here anymore, but he's going to add one thing to the prophets, but their words still continue to have impact, don't they, verse, verse 6. But it did not their words, that is of the prophets, my statutes, which I command in my service the prophets, did it not overtake your fathers? The answer is, yeah, it did. Even though everyone got together and says, this will not be true, and God's not going to do this. If you remember the stories of, in particular, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they tried to kill both of those guys. They tried to get rid of them because they constantly said, you people need to repent. You need to get your life right. God's got to be first in your life. And so they were sick and tired of these guys saying the same message, so they tried to get rid of them. And I guess eventually they did. The guys ceased to live, but nonetheless, their messages and what they said came true on them nonetheless. They were living in the rubble, the example of all this. Where are they? Where are your fathers? And, and yet they repented, but nonetheless it was too late because it says they repented only saying that, the, that as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us according to all of our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Don't wait till the, till the walls come crashing down to repent. Don't, don't wait till it all starts coming apart. Recognize where you are right now and say, I don't want to go there. I believe God is true. And when he says repent, that's what I ought to do. So Do it. So do that. So so, so let's get this straight. God is not, maybe as opposed to what you think, a senile Santa Claus who passively sits up in heaven, stroking his beard, patting people on the head, hoping we act right because he likes it that way. That is not the God of the Bible. It is not. God is hear me, very angry and very serious about sin. That is the God of the Bible. The person who believes that he can sin and go unpunished is a fool. Don't be one. Consider Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much ungodliness and unrighteousness? All of it. So, not just the unbelieving world and the atheist and the ignorant out there i would say there may be a load more grace for them because they don't know what this says as opposed to the christian who knows what this says and continues to live in unrighteousness and ungodliness just my opinion but take it for what it's worth against all ungodliness so christian or non all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, and that's what we do. Why is the world believing the lie? Because we're suppressing it by our own unrighteousness and ungodliness. So we, we hold it back. The, the release of the truth, the release of what's right and good, comes part and parcel with our repentance. Christian repentance. But, but to believe that our sins are going to, going to go unpunished, to believe that is truly foolish. Uh, this past year, 2018, I'm uh, an amazing discovery was made on the Outer Banks Beach of North Carolina. The amazing discovery was a Doritos bag. I'm amazed. The amazing thing about this Doritos bag was that it evidenced, just by looking at it, that it had been in the ocean a very long time. Not only the fact it had stuff going on, it, but as they began to clean it up, they began to see that the labeling on the bag didn't resemble any Doritos bag that we had today. So they finally got it cleaned up, and they finally got to the place where the date of when... And by the way, it was still... You know, Doritos bags are half air and then the other half is chips. They're not full of chips. That didn't bother anybody. Like, fill the thing full of chips. I wanted to say 16 ounces on there, you know. Pack them in there. This thing was still full of half air and half chips, but when they got to the date of when it was bagged, the thing was... this. They found it this past year. The thing was bagged in 1979. So maybe... Maybe a year on the shelf somewhere, but it fell off a boat or fell off of somebody's, I don't know, blew out when they were sitting on the beach or something. But it had been at sea for more or less 40 years. And it finally washed up. And it's a testimony of several things. First of all, it's a testimony of why you ought not throw plastic in the ocean. They're having a big move on that, and I kind of kind of feel the same way. The stuff does not go away easily. And it's also a testimony to the fact of our own lives. The stuff washes up even when you think it's gone, does it not? You well, so so you're living in such a way that you used to be convicted about it. I'm just making an example here. But you are no more. And you somehow think that God has also acquiesced to your same position. So the stuff I'm doing is not right, but it's not near as bad as her or him. And so God's going to cut you slack on that? God's just, it's not a big deal anymore because there's a whole lot of people worse than you. Holy cow, I'm so glad. glad you're in my family. You know, God's a little senile Santa Claus up there. No. He's not comparing you to him or her. He's comparing you to what's right, the standard. And the standard says you ought not be doing that stuff, and yet nonetheless you're doing it. But I don't feel convicted about it anymore. It does not matter. It's still wrong. Still stuff that you ought not do, or it is stuff that you ought to be doing that, of course, you're not doing. And yet you don't feel convicted anymore because you've run so long with it. Listen, that stuff's going to wash up on your beach. It's still coming back. It's still the same. God hasn't changed his position because your heart has changed concerning it. And it's so important that, that we grasp that. And so this is the part of the message that, that Zachariah is bringing. Okay, so your fathers were judged, and you're thinking, well, things are way better now because God is not mad anymore. No, he's still mad at sin. He will always be. He maintains it. Like I said, the wrath of God is real from heaven. When? Always against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's a fool to think that you will not pay for or be un- go unpunished for your sins. It's, it's foolish. Verse 3. So, so ha- having, having presented the wrath of God, Zechariah hastens, which I'm glad he does, to the grace of God. And went, I'm in a hurry to get there as well. Again, we've read verse 3, but it says, Therefore to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. Just simple message. A simple it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. return to me so that I can do all the things that you're wanting me to do for you So that I can bless you the way and that you can have this blessed life in which you're holding my hand as the shepherd and you're Following me and the benefits that come from that So but you're gonna have to you're gonna have to turn around in the direction the, the imagery that we had here earlier of the kids with the cup I mean, so that cup you want that cup filled but you've got to turn the wrong direction. You've got to turn it over You've got to turn it over. The, the blessings of God are pouring. Another example we have in the scriptures is Jesus. Of course, we know the Bible tells us that God loves us, right? And it is true. How we know God loves us? Because we're all still here. He definitely loves us. He's definitely, grace is, is abundant. But, but the love of God is like a flashlight beam. Jesus says, says uh, uh, now remain in my love. Remain in my love. I thought you loved me. He does love you at all times. But it's, it's like the beam of a flashlight. It only hits one spot. So if, if, if the love of God means I've got to be right there, but I'm way over there, guess what? It doesn't mean he doesn't love me, but it does mean I won't feel it. It does mean it won't look like it. So I, I'm, I'm walking and living in the darkness, but he says, come into the light and, and do what's right and repent and come back and say the things that you're doing is wrong or actually wrong so that you can experience the love of God experientially. Still there, but experientially. And so, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there is a place to be, and there's a place not to be. There, there's, a, there's a direction to be turned, and there's a direction to not be turned. And if you're in that wrong direction, you're in that wrong place, then you need to get up and get yourself where you need to be. Return, he says to me. Think of sin in the this, in this sense of high blood pressure. You know, we call high blood pressure the silent killer. Anybody here with high blood pressure? Say, it's going up higher, preacher, because we're getting closer to noon i got 10 minutes. I'm not taking those unless you continue to listen slowly. Hypertension is called the, the silent killer. Sin is sort of like a silent killer. We, 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 we mask it with stuff and we say, oh, well, everybody's not like me and I'm better than most people and God God's going to let me go because I don't have that many big things and I'm not killing anybody and I don't hate anybody and I'm not doing rape or anything like that, so I'm fine. Well, no. No. It's like a silent killer, it's like hypertension. You know, uh, not until the mid-30s, early 40s was high blood pressure considered a problem. If you read medical journals prior to this, in fact, they grow larger, more prominent as you go back in time, medical journals actually considered hypertension, high blood pressure to be a good thing. You got high blood pressure, buddy, yeah, you're gonna be hard working. It gives you energy. Makes you want to get up in the morning. Makes that heartbeat harder, and it's going to make you go further and do. And this was the philosophy. Here's, here's, here's reading from Doctor's Own Words, 1931. Dr. J.H. Hayes makes this statement. He says, the greatest danger to a man with high blood pressure lies in its discovery, he says. That it's silently killing you, if you will, but that you discover. He doesn't believe it was killing you. He says, because as soon as you discover it, some fool is certain to try to reduce it, he says. Let them be high blood pressure. Let the tension go, was the philosophy of the doctors back then. And I want to give you an example of an individual who lived back in this time and what happened to him because of untreated high blood pressure. And I know we know that high blood pressure is is what it is. But a guy by the name of Frank, and you know Frank, but you may not know Frank. And so let me tell you about Frank's life. Frank was diagnosed with hypertension in 1937 at the age of 54. He had a blood pressure reading of 162 over 98, it was called mild hypertension. He was recommended no measures whatsoever, nor medication to get his blood pressure down. Because like I said, the the typical thought back then was, it's no big deal, in fact, we really think it's a plus, so Frank, you just keep on doing what you're supposed to be doing. So three years later, in 1940, no treatment initiated, like I said, his blood pressure read 180 over 88, so it's climbing. 1941, his pressure pressure read 188 over 105. Eee. That's getting bad. Not that any of it's good. And he was encouraged to kick back on the smoking and not work so much, which he did neither one of those things. 1944, his pressure was running higher, and he started suffering series of small, as we know today, TIAs, just many strokes that would correct themselves, but evidence of the fact that he was having problems. He started showing classic symptoms of uh, heart failure as a result of all this. So they put him on a commanded low sodium diet and asked him to smoke less and work less, which he didn't do hardly any of those things. 1945, one year later, his pressure was 260 over 145. And on April 12th, 1945, he began to complain of a severe headache, lapsed into a coma. His last blood pressure reading was 300 over 190, and he died that afternoon. You know Frank. He was 63 when he died. You know him because we don't know him as Frank, but you know him as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd President of the United States. Now, he was the president, right? He had the best care, and all the care said that this blood pressure is no big deal. But in fact, he died, I mean, I'm 52 now, so I'm thinking 62 is a relatively young man. He died as a relatively young man, because of it doesn't matter what you believe about it, guys, it's going to kill you. doesn't matter. Okay, you think your disease isn't a disease? Well, it's still a disease. And, and, the, and the main point here, because we're back in the Scriptures, you really think sin isn't a big deal? It is a big deal. It doesn't matter what you think about it. You think it's not destroying you and not messing you up and not keeping you from a lot of stuff that God wants to bless you with? Keep thinking that. I, I don't recommend that. But it won't change reality. Stick your head in the sand all you want to. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to face it, and you're going to have to do what the doctor prescribes or else. Return to me, he says, that I may return to you. The desire of God is to be in a right right relationship with us. He went all the way to sending his son on the cross to die for our sins, to, to make the way open for us to be in a right relationship with him. So you've trusted Christ as personal Savior. Now you can go out and live however you want to. Not without consequences. Well, I don't think it's hurting me. I don't think it's all that bad compared to everybody else. Well, think whatever you want, but the Bible says return. Repent. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you said, made a list of the stuff you ought not be doing, but you are? And you got it right with God. When was the last time you, you, you came back to him in a serious way and not just said some simple prayer forgive me from our sins and the things we do and bless me, God? And no, you, you got down because God knows the individual sins. You got down with the individual sins, and you dealt with them. I want to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we think about the things that God has said to us today. Repentance is a huge topic in the Bible, and we don't need to go to Zechariah. We can go to so many other places. Because it, it, it means you have to turn away from the way the direction that you're going in order to be able to turn to God. And the, 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 the beauty of it is, is that it's, it's not a turning and journeying anywhere. It's just a simple turnaround. Because God is following you. God is following us today. And it's a shame if that's all, all we're letting him do is follow us. God should be leading us. He should be in the front. He shouldn't be in the back. And so, so to get him in the front in our lives, we're going to have to turn around. We're going to have to say over our sin the same thing that he says. Confess it. Just, just call it what it is. Don't, don't call it a, a hang-up and don't call it a shortcoming. But say it's wrong and it's a sin and it breaks God's heart. And it's part of the reason why he hung his son on the cross. Be real with it. And then ask God. Say, God, I want to return to you so that you might return to me. God stands ready to give you the power. In fact, it's all his power to work that renewal in your life, that rejuvenation, that, that, that coming back to the place where you're not just knowing that God loves you, but in the light of his love, not just knowing that God wants to bless you, but in a turn rightly so that he can fill you with those blessings. God, I thank you that you stand ready to do that. I thank you for your great power that can work that in our lives. I thank you that as commanded there, a new new heart and a new spirit. We can't do that, God, but you can do that. So God, I pray that in our hearts today, we would turn to you. We would say, help me, God. Help me to be real with my stuff, real about where I'm going, real about my desire to not go there anymore and real about turning to you. God, thank you that you call us. Thank you for your great call. Help us to hear and heed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.